Our God and Father, we thank you for your, your mercy to us, O Lord. And God, you were under no obligation to reveal yourself to us, but yet you have been good and you have been kind to us and given us your word. God, you have most clearly revealed yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for both your biblical word and the word of God in Christ. Lord, help us, God, to believe these things by the aid of your Holy Spirit. Help us, God, to grow in our unity in one another in this church. And God, we pray that we will be able to do all of these things for your glory. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. So I need to apologize. I ran out of the house this morning and left a handout. Sorry. So um, this is part two of last week. So I'll talk slow if you take notes. If you plan on taking notes, so I'll just talk slower than normal. So uh, last week we were on talking about, well, so first of all, we're in a series of unity and diversity in a local church. Um, last week we started on division in the church, why division in the church is so terrible and why unity in the church was um, such a valuable thing. We were going through several passages in 1 Corinthians. Um, so just as a recap, what we talked about was unity and how the Lord Jesus Christ in his um, high priestly prayer in John 17, just as his high priestly prayer in John 17, he um, prayed that the Lord would unify the believers any, anybody that would believe in him to make them at one as just as he and the Father were one. And then that was the great, um, that our unity in the Christian church is a great sign and indication to the world of the wisdom and the power of God and the gospel. Um, you got to look for the signal. The next time that noise come up, it's coming from one of those channels, so whichever channel that is, just mute it. Okay. Um, the, we talked about also how we, as a church, have to take seriously the call to be unified, how division in the church is such a terrible thing, and how we have to, by the power of God, it's one of these mics. We have to, by the power of God, um, strive to do everything that we can to be unified. We shouldn't be dividing over particular ministers, particular pastors, our favorite preachers, but we should be unified as one in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then we talked about these three, all of these multiple different reasons why the... Uh, why unity was so important. We, and we were going through seven different reasons, seven different reasons why unity was so important. And those seven different reasons were godly unity displays Christ. Godly unity exalts the cross. Godly unity expresses humility. Godly unity shows wisdom, shows the wisdom of God. Godly unity is evidence of spiritual maturity. 
Godly unity reflects submission to God, and godly unity comes from treasuring God's promises. So we only got through the first four, which were God's unity displays Christ, unites God's unity, exalts the cross, God unity, or godly unity expresses humility, and godly unity shows wisdom. So where we're at now is godly unity exposes spiritual maturity. Godly unity exposes spiritual maturity. So does anybody have any questions from last week? No? Me and Pastor Ed have been doing an amazing job speaking with clarity. So nobody has any questions anymore. Right, Nova? Right. <laughs> All right. So godly unity exp- exp- um, expresses spiritual maturity. That's so this is the fifth reason that Paul gives us in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, for why unity in a local congregation is so important. Godly unity gives evidence of spiritual maturity. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles with you. Just a continuation of where we were at last week. So... Godly unity gives evidence of spiritual maturity. So if you remember last week, we talked about how Paul was chiding the Corinthians for the divisions that they were making one, um, in the church because they were dividing over being uh, having favoritism between Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And then Paul asked the question, is Christ divided? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he thanked God that he was baptized in none of them. So he's chiding them. For last week, we talked about how he's chiding them for the fact that they were dividing over who their favorite minister was. We talked about the folly of doing this because anything you learn good from any man of God, the Lord is the one who empowered him to preach that way. And if one pastor, like Pastor Vladimir may be better at explaining the topic better than I am. It was the Lord who gifted him to do that. It was the Lord who changed your heart to believe Christ. And it was the Lord that had given you the, the, the desire and the ability to believe these things. So the man behind the pulpit is not the one that's responsible for doing any of that. God is. So here we're talking about a continuation of the same subject why division is terrible and why godly unity is evidence of spiritual maturity. So we're in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So that's from the ESV. I want to read this same passage again to you from the Holman, because I think it's helpful here, the way that the Holman translates it. It says, brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink not solid food, because you were not ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still fleshly. For since there is envy and strife among you, 
are you not fleshly and living like unbelievers? So that's the translation from the Holman. So these verses show us that godly unity is proof of spiritual maturity, whereas the divisions that we saw in, or that we see in the church at Corinth reveals spiritual immaturity. And this is why Paul says that you're acting like babies. You're acting like, I can't speak to you as mature people because you're acting like children. You're acting like infants. And so this is the reason for this division that you see in this church. So Paul writes to them as if they're spiritual infants or worldly people. Um, because the divisions as present among them prove that they are not ready for anything else but milk. So this is a weakness that they have, and it's their own fault. So you and I would never blame a three-year-old child for being incapable of having an adult conversation, would we? Would you? No, you wouldn't do that. Well, I wouldn't do that. Maybe some of y'all would, but I wouldn't do that. You can't hold a three-year-old child to that standard, but the, you can't make that same argument by the Corinthians because they, these people had been given every opportunity to grow in Christ. So we know from church history that Paul lived with these people for over a year and a half. We know that Apollos was there in this church, and he was apparently a remarkable teacher. And he had been with them at this time while this letter was written. This letter also gives us proof that Cephas or Peter was there at this church. So they had been hearing all of this great, wonderful teaching from the Apostle Peter, from Apollos, who's a capable teacher, and also from Paul. And simply put, the Corinthians had received enough teaching from these people to know better than to have the kind of divisions that they were having in the church at the time, right? So they were, instead of living according to the things that they had heard from the word of God, they were living according to the secular ways of the city in Corinth, and their division and jealousy and their quarreling among them proved it. So in other words, they, you, you, they've heard enough of the gospel to know better than to do what they were doing, right? You and I fall in a similar category. We have more Bibles than most of us can, can read. We have 15 different translations of the Bible. You got a, a, a smartphone in your pocket right now with more theological literature and books than any person has had in the history of humanity. You literally have no reason for not knowing something. Amen? And so anytime we have division or spiritual immaturity in the church, it's because we're not listening to what God has been telling us. Right? It's not for lack of knowledge that we can't make that excuse. None of us can make that excuse that we didn't know that we should be one body. None of us can make the excuse that we didn't know that the church belongs to Christ, that this is Christ's bride and we ought to live as one family in the Lord. None of us can say that we didn't know that. None of us can say that. The only thing that we can say is, is that we didn't obey the Lord. Amen? So I need to take a detour here because 
these passages that I just read, some Christians have developed this idea of the carnal Christian from this, these verses. Have you ever heard of this before? Carnal Christianity? Okay, listen. So a carnal Christian is supposedly, supposedly someone who is a believer who might have been baptized or made a profession of faith years ago and they live this semi-quasi-committed Christian lifestyle. I don't believe that that's a sound interpretation of this passage. That is not, I don't believe that that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is calling attention to the shameful way, the shameful way that the uh, Corinthians are living. And he's not trying to justify this second tier of Christianity. He's not trying to say that there's these um, um, super Christians and then there's this lower tier of Christianity. So that he's not trying to say that there's these really committed Christians and then there's this second tier of Christians that made a profession of faith and they're just not striving hard enough or they, they haven't had some experience that has motivated them to live more for Jesus. That's not the argument that he's making here. He's saying that this is an unacceptable way to live if you are a believer. Does that make sense to you? So... I don't know, some of you are young in here, some, some of the older people might know this. There's no such thing as carnal Christianity. That is not a thing. Okay, that's like a $3 bill. That does not exist. Okay? This is important because for years, for years, this idea of the carnal Christian has been taught. Right? That, so, but what this means and then why this is important, because this may mean that there are some people who thought they were converted, many, many years ago, because they, like I said, they prayed a prayer, or they had some emotional experience at youth camp, or they even got baptized, and the, the pastor wrote down the date of their baptism in the front of their Bible. Those people, you just may need to examine yourself, okay, to determine, am I really a believer? Not, I'm a carnal Christian, I'm living in this second-tier Christianity. That's not real. Okay, what you may find is that you were never truly converted. Right? If you have no interest in the things of God, if a person is not growing in spiritual maturity, they're probably not saved. Right? A true Christian wants more of Jesus. Amen? A true Christian wants to be conformed to the image of Christ more and more. So carnal Christianity is not a way to live the Christian life. There are only two options. You're either for Christ or you're against him. That's it. There's, there's no other way. You're either of Christ or you're of Adam. Right? So, here, so this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that there are not spiritually immature Christians. That's not what I'm saying. There's clearly spiritually immature Christians in the world. What I am saying is, is that you can't truly be saved if you stay immature. Okay? You can't stay, you can't be in the Christian faith for decades and still be immature. Right? So I have a three-year-old at home, and every now and again, he acts like a maniac. Right? He'll start doing all kind of crazy stuff because he's three, and we have to reprimand him. And so sometimes, like, you laughed, right? That's cute. It's not cute when you're 40, right? 
because when you're 40, we take that person and we lock them up in a padded room because that's a lunatic, right? So the things that you did as a young Christian, people will give you a pass for because you're immature. But if you've been walking with the Lord 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and you're still acting immaturely, that's not carnal Christianity. That's a question to determine. You need to determine, am I, do I really know the Lord? Amen? So that's not a thing. This is not a thing. Carnal Christianity is not a thing. This does not exist. Okay? So the unity that Paul is calling the Corinthians to and that he's calling us to, is, he's calling us to have, is only possible among spiritually mature people. It is impossible to be unified as a church with a bunch of immature Christians in it. Amen? So, godly unity reflects, the sec- this is the, uh, we're on the sixth reason why unity is so important. Godly unity reflects a submission to God. <clears throat> godly unity reflects a submission to God. So again, the sixth reason Paul gives for Christian unity is that it reflects submission to God. So look at verse 4, and we're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. It says this, For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely, are you not being merely human? That's from the ESV, are you not being merely human? So the divisions in the Corinthians church were an attack on God himself. Okay, they were an attack on God himself. The way that the Corinthians were thinking about ministry, the way that the Corinthians were thinking about the church is ungodly. Okay, look at verse 5. It says this. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted. Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. So Paul Paul's argument here is that God alone is the one who directs various preachers and ministers that he employed. And God is the one who has the right to do this because God is the one who founded the church. These are his teachers. These are his pastors. These are his ministers. This is his church. And he's the one that's responsible for all of the growth, not these men. These men are not responsible for this growth. That is why it is sheer buffoonery for us to divide over who your favorite pastor is because God did that. That man is not responsible for that. God is responsible for your growth. God is responsible for the church, the growth of any church, not the pastor, not the pastor. Do you understand? I need to beat this into your head, okay? It's not me. It's not Rolo, it's not Pastor Ed, it's not Pastor Vladimir. It is the Lord alone, okay? Then he goes on to say this. 
Actually, I need you to drop down a verse. Just drop down to verse 10. Verse 10, we're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Okay? You hear this? I'm going to read it again. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ. Okay? Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. So each teacher or each pastor or each minister's work will be judged, not on some superficial appearance, not on um, how well he could speak, not on how excited he could get you, not on how many people he could put in the seats of the pews. His, every preacher's work will be judged upon how consistent it is with the foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how the Lord is gauging and judging every preacher. Are you preaching the gospel that is consistent with the message that the apostles brought? Right? Because there are preachers out here who can make you feel wonderful. You understand? They're very good orators. They're very good speakers. They will make you leave a place feeling like you're on cloud nine and send you all the way to hell. Do you understand? What you need is somebody who will preach the gospel to you unadulterated so that you would know the Lord. That's what you need more than anything else. Amen? You don't need trinkets. It doesn't matter how good or terrible the band sounds. How is the Lord being presented to you every Lord's Day? That's what you need. That's what's most important. Right? And this is how every man who stands behind that pulpit is being judged. And that's how you should judge him. You should judge him the same way. You shouldn't judge whether or not uh, what he looks like, how he dressed. Well, he should be dressed appropriately, okay? You should not be judging him based on his oration, right, or his style of preaching. You should be listening for the content of what the man is saying, and is he preaching Christ? That's what you should be listening for, because that's what God is judging him on, and nothing else. So, then Paul, look at this, in verse 16. So we're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're on verse 16 now. He says this. Do you, I'm sorry, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit, God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God temp, God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world 
is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So we talked about this once before. The reason why the world hates the gospel, the reason why unbelievers hate the gospel is because the gospel does two things simultaneously. It talks about the eternal love of God and what men must do to be saved. And it simultaneously keeps pointing you to, to, to the fact that you did everything you could to destroy it. Do you understand that? You and I, because we're sinners, we did all we could to walk away from God. Our sin is proof that we were hostile towards God. Our sin is proof that we were enemies of God and that in our hearts we hated him before he saved us, right? And even as believers, we still sin. But the gospel says that despite that fact, the Lord loves you. He sent his son to die and he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And by his Holy Spirit, he will sanctify you into the image of his son, right? And in our flesh, and in our flesh, we do everything we can, everything we can to destroy that love and to walk away from that love. And this is why the world hates the gospel. Because when Christ died for us, the gospel lets us know if you are his, you are his slave now. You've been bought with a price. You do not belong to you anymore. You belong to the Lord Jesus. You are not autonomous. You cannot do what you want to do with your body anymore. Why? Because you have a master in heaven who tells you what you can do with it. The world hates that. The world absolutely hates that. You had a question, Ricky. So the, what I said was the gospel talks about the eternal love of God. What what God has done in human history to save people, okay? But simultaneously talked about what man, what humanity has done to crush that, right? And the world hates that because it forces you to humble yourself. It forces us to come to terms with the fact that we're not that wonderful. You're not that wonderful. What's the proof? The cross of Jesus Christ. The fact that God himself had to die to save you is proof of the fact that you need a savior, that you're not that wonderful, that somebody else other than your spouse knows that you're a terrible person, okay? And so the world hates this. And so the gospel is foolishness to these people. The gospel is foolishness to the world, but to the man who's humbled himself under the word of God, he understands, right? So the church in Corinth was in danger of being destroyed because of their immaturity and their ungodly divisions, because they didn't trust, they didn't believe the gospel like they should have, right? So now, it's true that no one will ever succeed in destroying the church universally. The church will never be destroyed. The Lord Jesus Christ has promised us that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. That will never happen. And history has proven this to be the case. But nevertheless, we must not be foolish at this point. The Bible does not say that local congregations cannot be destroyed. The Bible does not say that anywhere. Local congregations have been 
destroyed and will continue to be destroyed if we do not follow the Lord. Amen? Okay? So we mustn't be foolish. We mustn't take the promises of God and misapply them in any way and use them as excuses for us to be immature Christians. We can't do that. We cannot do that. All right? And so, because we just read this. I think it was in verse, what was it, verse 14? We said that the Lord, but do you not, it's verse 16, but do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16, and it says this. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Right? He's talking about a local congregation here. He's talking about a local congregation. So, he has a promise to destroy anyone who attempts to destroy his local church. So I want to urge all of us here to not be that person. Okay? Don't be that person. So this whole thing we've been talking about is spiritual immaturity and the division that it causes and how it can wreak havoc and destroy a church. So what that means is, is that you and I have to put forth effort to grow in our maturity in the Lord. And wherever we see divisions, we have to labor hard to crush them, first in our own hearts and then, in, in, and then across the church wide. Amen? Any questions so far? Any questions? No questions? No questions? Okay. So spiritual immaturity is the cause for division. Therefore, so unity in a church shows that you have a group of mature Christians to some degree that are working to put those divisions aside. The, uh, the seventh reason, the seventh and final reason that uh, unity is so important is that unity comes from treasuring God's promises. Unity comes from treasuring God's promises. The seventh and final reason that Paul gives for why unity is so important to the local church is that unity is joined together or linked together with, God, with God's promises. So look at verse 21, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. It says this, let no one boast in men, <clears throat> for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So Paul says that the kind of unity that we are called to in a local church, it comes from believing all that God has said about his church and believing all the promises that God has given to his people. So because of those promises, the, the promises that God has given to us as a body of believers, the divisions in this church are un, divisions in, this, in Corinth are unnecessary divisions. It's no reason for them to fight over, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, because he says here, all of, all of them are yours. They're all yours. All the promises of God are yours, is what he's saying here. So it's, again, buffoonery for you to divide over the men. 
Because everything God has promised you is yours in Christ. If you are in Christ, every spiritual blessing that God has promised his church, Christ has secured it for you. Amen? It's not the pastor. It's not the preacher. It's Christ. It's what Christ has done for you. All of those promises are yours. In G- Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That's not a rhetorical question. Do you believe that? Okay, so then it doesn't matter who's saying it. Does it matter if Vladimir is saying it? Does it matter if R.C. Sproul is saying it over the Internet? Because he can't say it now because he did and he's a Baptist now. Right? Is it, is, it, is it me? No, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. None of these men have done any of this for you. Okay? They're just mouthpieces and megaphones for the Lord. Why are you dividing and causing division over men like this? Why? Why? Those men are scaffolds in the hand of God. God is the one that's doing that. God is the one that's doing that. So for us to hold up one man over another man is sure buffoonery. It is absolutely ridiculous, and it makes no sense, right? Because all, we're supposed to be unified in God, amen? All of us. So there's local churches, and there's a church universal, right? We just read in this text, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, they all belong to you because you're in Christ, right? And then earlier in this letter, in 1 in Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 4, he says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Listen to this, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You don't sound like you believe it. If you divide and start sitting up men, one man over another man, in the church like this, it's because you don't believe this text. Because you don't believe that all that God has promised you in Christ is yours in Christ. You think it's in John MacArthur. You think it's in Vody Bauckham. You think it's in whatever preacher you're listening to. You don't think it's in Jesus. You think it, it matters that the you think it matters in which man is saying it or how that man is saying it. You don't think it's Jesus doing it. I hope that I hope that hits your ear and it sounds real stupid because it is stupid. Amen. This is what the Bible says. Let God be true and every man be a liar. Any good thing that you've ever heard from any preacher, God did that. You are a complete fool to give that man credit for that. Because like I said last week, that man, uh, absent without Jesus Christ, is a fool and he's lost. I'm a fool and I'm lost without Christ. And you're a fool if you think I'm the one that's responsible for your spiritual growth. You can go talk to my wife and she'll tell you I'm crazy. Right? And I'm sure um, Vladimir's wife will do the same thing. (laughs) Right? My point is, is that it is the Lord is the one that's responsible for all growth. 
And if this man, these preachers that you're listening to, if they're brothers in the Lord, God bless them. But God did that. I'm not telling you not to listen to them. I listen to them. I'm just telling you, don't elevate them. Do not elevate these men. They are but men. And they, they, need, they need the same thing that you need. And the only reason that you're not preaching, assuming you're a man, and they are, is because God gifted them to do so. That's the only reason. That's the only reason. Every time you hear, the, the next time you hear the best sermon you ever, the best sermon you ever heard in your life, because it's going to change every two years, right? You know what you need to say? The first thing you need to do is go, thank Jesus for that. Thank Jesus that God gifted that man with the ability, well, first of all, that God saved him, assuming he's saved, and that God gave him the desire to preach and fill the pulpit, and that he was faithful. Because he's only faithful because the Lord, the Lord made him that way. Amen? And the Lord did that for your sake. The Lord did that for the growth of your own soul and so that his church would be built, not for the elevation of that man. Don't do that to him. First of all, you're going to destroy him. You know that, right? You know when you elevate these preachers like that, you destroy that man. Do you know that? Do you know that? You're not doing that man a service. That man needs to be humbled to handle this word. That man is going to have to stand before God and give an account for every word that he came, that he gave to you out of this pulpit. And that we just read it. His work is going to be judged. And if it does not stand on the day, you saw that day was capitalized. That's talking about the day of judgment. That man is going to have to give an account to God. And if we go around elevating these men and giving them big heads, they don't humbly approach the word of God. We're responsible for that. You understand that, right? We're responsible for that. Do you understand that? For elevating a wretch far beyond what he needs to be elevated? That man's job is one thing and one thing only, is to put a spotlight on the glory of God. So, if you leave a sermon and all you can remember is the preacher and not Jesus, he's not doing his job or you're not paying attention. Amen? Amen. And all that does is cause division in the church, which is ungodliness, and it is a sign of spiritual immaturity. All right? So when you believe what the Bible actually says, that all the promises of God are yours, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, not in yes and amen in pastor fill in the blank, but yes and amen in Christ. It doesn't matter who the preacher is. It does not matter who the preacher is. And here's the other thing. If that's what you believe, when your favorite pastor fails and he fails to preach the word of God, you'll hold him accountable. Because, you know, some of you know, some of y'all don't do that. Some of us don't do that. If it's your favorite guy, you just give him a pass because it's your favorite guy. Not because he's being consistent with the word of God, but because you like him. It's quiet. It's quiet. That should never be so. That should never, never, ever be so. It should never be that you give whoever your favorite pastor is a, a pass 
because you like something he said about another subject. That should never happen. That is ungodliness and immaturity. That man has a responsibility, and the congregation has a responsibility to hold his feet to the fire. Is he preaching the word of God? Not, is he agreeing with my points? Is he preaching the word of God? That's your responsibility. Like I told you last week, if me, Pastor Vladimir, Pastor Ed, or any one of us, Pastor Rolo, when we stop preaching the word of God, like we're supposed to, you have a responsibility to the sheep in this congregation to hold us accountable. That's your responsibility. You know how many sermons Pastor Rollo has preached about how you fire a bad pastor? You need to know that. Your children are here. You got, how many of y'all got children in here? Nobody, I know it's more of y'all got children than that. Listen to me, y'all got children in here that are listening to us preach. You can't let us get crazy up here. You cannot let that happen for the sake of your children's soul. You cannot do that. You understand? So spiritual maturity is going to force you to hold your Bible open, look at it, and say, is Pastor Corey teaching the word right now? Not do I like him. Not does he have the best D group in the whole church, because he does, but nevertheless, right? So the point is, that's not how you supposed to, that's not how you supposed to gauge it. You supposed to get, is he preaching the word of God? And when he's not, and when he stops, you need to move immediately to have him out the pulpit. Because this is Christ's church. You have a duty to keep it unified, and you have a duty to make sure that the foundation is solid and that it's always Jesus. It's never men. It's never men, because men are going to always fail you. You know how many, fi- you know how many preachers have been fired from this church? Do you know how many? Historically, how many men have been fired from this church? Historically, how many men have been fired from First Baptist Church of the Lakes because they stopped doing that? You know. Some of the older members know. Yeah. That's what was supposed to happen. They were supposed to not say, oh, I like pastor such and such. It's like, that man is no longer doing his job. Sit down. Because this is not about men. This is about the glory of God. This is about the glory of God, and it's about the souls of your unbelieving friends and family and neighbors. That you have a responsibility to hold the unity of the church together, be spiritually mature Christians, know what the Bible says, know what the gospel is, understand the promises of God have been secured for you in Christ, and every man who gets in this pulpit, you hold his feet to the fire, and you make sure he's preaching that and nothing else. Amen? Amen. That is our duty as a church. That's how you create unity. Unity is not us just feeling good together in the same room. Unity is that we are under the banner of Jesus Christ every single Lord's Day, hearing the word of God preached for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? That is our duty. That is our duty. So all the promises of God are yours in Christ Jesus, 
right? You're not lacking any spiritual gift is what Paul says. The Lord Jesus Christ has enriched Christians in every way so that all faithful Christian teachers are yours and the things that they teach belong to you, assuming they're teaching the things that Jesus teaches. Amen? They're yours. So, all God's promises are yours in Christ. Whether we hear them from Paul or Cephas or Apollos or Vody Bacham or John MacArthur or whoever it is, fill in the blank. They all belong to you because if it's from the word of God, it belongs to Christ. And everything that Christ has, he has already given to you. So, godly unity comes from believing that all of these promises are God's, not men's. So the ramifications, the ramifications of division in the church are far-reaching. The ramifications for division in the church are far-reaching. They not only drive people away from the church, but they cast doubt on the power of the gospel. It is unbelievers who think, who believe because of some of the division that they saw in the church, that they think that God is not capable of saving people. You understand that? So Christian sanctification, we have a part to play in that. We have to strive and labor to do that. Spiritual immaturity is in part, if we're spiritually immature, it's in part because we didn't do, we didn't work hard to some degree. God is responsible, but we still have to labor to grow in Christ. Amen? So if there's immaturity and division in the church, that's in part our fault. So when people see, outsiders see this division, we're partly responsible for that, in part. Okay? So we have to do everything this is what, the, I don't have time to go through the rest of the book, but that's what, when you get from 1 Corinthians 7 all the way through 14, his entire argument is waive your rights. Waive your rights. For the sake of the body, waive your rights. Right? Is what he says sometimes. So for this reason, we have a duty, we have a responsibility as believers to address the issues that cause disunity and division within our own congregation. I don't care how much uh, division is in the SBC, I care about how much division is in First Baptist Church of the Lakes. Do you understand? You don't understand? Your responsibility is this. Your first responsibility is your own heart, number one, then your family, and then your church, and then you can go take care of the SBC after that. Okay? But if you got div- we have division among us here in First Baptist, and we're spending all of our energy trying to fight battles in the SBC. We have misguided um, ideals. What good is it for us to fight all these battles and spend all these energies in these entities that's outside of us when the place that's right next to us is divided in the same way? What sense does that make? What sense would it make for me to stand up in this pulpit every Sunday and preach the gospel to all of you and none of my children know never heard the gospel before? One of the qualifications of a pastor is what? That he manages his own household well. Because if he can't manage his own household, how can he manage the household of God? It would be asinine for Pastor Rolo to spend all of his time trying to fix the SBC if this church is broken. You shouldn't even want him to do that. 
So I'm not saying, again, if you hear me saying, leave the SBC, I might be saying that, maybe, I don't know. Okay? <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is that your first and primary concern is here. If this is broken, listen, Miss Murtis died last night. How many of y'all knew her? No, 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 no. Not knew who she was. Knew her. How many of y'all been to her house and sat down and had a meal with her? How many of you? How many of you spent time with her and drove her back and forth to church? How many of you know her daughter's name? Do you? I'm not saying nobody does, but what I'm saying is, is that it would be, it is absolute buffoonery for you to spend a bunch of time trying to save all the widows and the orphans in Las Vegas if you don't even spend any time trying to do any ones with the ones in your own family. Do you understand? So, you can fix the SBC, but fix this place first. Take over the world after you subdued your own heart and subdued your own home. Then you take over the world. That is, that is utter foolishness. I don't mean to scold you. I'm sorry. I apologize. Okay? But that makes no sense to me. That, that makes no sense. If a man is disqualified from eldering a church on the basis that he can't manage his own home, then clearly the Bible is telling us that his primary responsibility is his own home. Amen? Amen. So fix your home, your heart first, then fix your home, then move to your church, then you fix the city. Because what good are you going to be if your family's broken? It's quiet. That was a legitimate question. That's a legitimate question. What good are you going to be to take over the world if you can't take over the little world in your own house? You got a bunch of little unbelievers in your house if you got babies. You can't preach the gospel to them. If you're a parent in here and you got a three-year-old at home, you know your three-year-old believe everything you says, but the rest of the us know you're not that smart. Okay, but they believe everything that you say and you're not going to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But you got the time and the energy to take over the rest of the world. That makes sense to you. That makes sense to you. That is buffoonery. There's something like legitimately wrong with you if you think that that's okay. What would I look like if I'm working every day and I'm taking care of the woman next door and I'm not going to take care of my wife and my children? You should get me out of this pulpit. Amen? Again, I know some of y'all hearing, don't, don't be a part of the SBC. Don't do this. Don't. I'm not saying none of that. I'm not saying none of that. What I'm saying is you need to work from the inside out. That's what I'm saying. If you don't know the orphans and the widows in this church, this is your church family. You understand that, right? This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. If you don't know these people, you should. 
I don't want to hear you come talking to me about no, no kind of uh, orphan ministry and no kind of widow's ministry outside of this church if you don't know the names of the women and the widows in this church. That is stupid. Do you understand? I mean that from deep down in the recesses of my soul, okay? I don't want to hear, we don't want to hear nobody talking about fixing the SBC if we can't fix First Baptist. We want to go fix doctrinal problems in the SBC? We got our own doctrinal problems. When are you going to fix those? I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm scolding you. I shouldn't be doing that. We're friends. I'm not your father. Okay. But like, I'm serious about this though. We have to start home first. We have to have unity in our own church. I could care less about how unified the SBC is if we're not unified first. Amen, church? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercy, God. I pray that you would forgive me for talking to your people, talking to your people without care and compassion that you would, Lord. I pray, God, that you would forgive me for, for, um, for doing that. Um, Lord, I thank you for these people, for their desire to hear your word. And I pray, God, that they would forgive me for speaking to them in this way. I just, Lord, I just pray that we would all know how important it is for us to have unity among one another, for us to love one another with the love of Christ above any and everything else, O oh Lord. Lord, you take these things seriously, and I pray that we would do the same. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen.